Hi, here's Florian with a new podcast guest, so introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Al Lakani. I'm the founder and CEO of ID GmbH. Uh, we are a Munich-based uh, identity company. We help users create digital identities that are reusable, that are secure, uh, and are trustworthy. And this helps businesses because businesses can onboard new customers with one click. I like to say if Facebook sign up and Amazon one click had a baby, it would be ID one click because we provide instant sign up, instant checkout across multiple platforms. So what's your story? Why did you uh, invent or found this company? Well, it's uh, a very simple story. It begins with, I was bored. Um, I founded and ran the forensics practice globally at Alvarez and Marcel for 12 years. I started it in 2003 and I left in 2015. And during my uh, tenure at Alvarez and Marcel, uh, I did a lot of very complicated uh, crisis management projects. Uh, the largest one I did was Lehman Brothers uh, in 2008. The, right after Lehman Brothers, I also started Washington Mutual. And then I focused on the European banking crisis and I did the asset quality reviews at the Spanish, Greek and Irish banks. And then I reopened the Cyprus banks after the 10-day banking holiday. So a lot of crisis and there was a common theme that always was was there around identity and after doing crisis management for 12 years I wanted to do something different uh, because I feel crisis management is very valuable but you're not building something you're fixing it and so in April of 2015 I flew to Silicon Valley, spent about a week with, uh, I knew a lot of people at uh, Facebook, Apple, Google, Silver Lake, Anderson Horowitz. And I asked them what was coming up on the identity front. And they didn't give me any answers that were inspiring. And so I flew back on the red eye, landed April 15th in New York, and I resigned that afternoon and started the company July 1, 2015 with a blank sheet of paper and the idea was can I create identities that cannot be stolen and once I solved that the idea was well can I reuse identities so it makes it easy for end users to instantly sign up and four years later here we are so what was the identity problem in the context of Lehman Brothers and the Cypress Banks and so on? Is that like the identity was a, a coming up theme? So what, what I saw at Lehman Brothers and I saw it even more in the Bank of Cyprus in 2013, so that was, you know, five year span, yeah. is we are doing more and more online we are buying online, we are signing up for new products and services. And if you look at the electromobility trend in Germany, 
I mean, I just looked back three months ago, there was no e-scooter, and now they are everywhere. So what is happening is we are becoming um, a, a economy that is always creating great new products and services, but then there comes a massive speed bump, massive friction where to consume these products and services, you have to go through the sign-up process. Yeah. And after the sign-up process, you have to go through this payment process. And in that payment process, all of these banks, because there's so much fraud, create all of these hurdles. You know, what's your mother's maiden name? Or what city were you born in? What street did you live on? All of these are created fundamentally to make sure you are who you say you are because they can't see you. Yeah. And that is the fundamental problem with identity is when you're conducting business, not face-to-face -face, but online, you don't know if this person is authentic. And so that is what I wanted to solve is can I make sure that Florian, you are authentic and when you say you're authentic, Anybody else in the world can say, yes, I can trust that you are Florian and therefore I am not going to ask you silly questions like what is your mother's maiden name? Okay, so, but you would have the same effect if you let uh, verify my, my passport once. Mm -hmm. For example, like banks do this, if you open up an account, you go to Postident yeah. or similar things mm -hmm. and then they know, okay, That, that's me, and then there are like services like, for example, Verimi or something, which try to bring this to many companies. So what, what is different on your solution? So we have a fundamental belief that everybody's identity is already proven. Okay. Uh, which is your identity is, uh, so I think let's use Europe-wide. Europe-wide, there is 500 million EBAN accounts. Yeah. Right. I think penetration in Germany, 93% of people, 92% of people have a banking account, which means every person's KYC has been done. No, your customer has been done. And that identity is proven. It's sitting somewhere. What we are saying is if that identity is already proven, if you hand that identity back to the customer as a bank, If I were to, if your bank, uh, let's say you bank at uh, Deutsche Bank, and Deutsche Bank says, you know, what do you use? Oh, well, I use the Deutsche Bank app. So if that app had Florian, your identity yeah. inside of it, and you could walk up to any online platform and use that identity to instantly sign up and check out, what you've created is a convenience for you, right? Because you don't have to enter any data. What you have created for the merchant, let's say it's Zalando, they can trust that you indeed are Florian. Yeah. And for Deutsche Bank, you have actually allowed them to monetize their identity. They spent hundreds of euros when they onboard you as a customer, which is sunk cost. But by letting you use your identity, Zalando would be more than happy to pay Deutsche Bank for this conversion. Think of it as a lead generation of sorts, right? And that is what we do differently. So what we are saying is here is an identity that has already been proven. 
let's allow you as a customer to reuse it. And the monetary benefit is from the organization that created it. So telecom is a great example. Banking is a great example. Um, uh, mobility, so Sixth or Avis or Hertz, they make sure that you are who you say you are before they give you a 30,000 euro asset, right? So they have all proven your identity. And what we are doing is we're saying from that app, the Sixth app or the Deutsche Bank app um, or the Commerce Bank app or the Deutsche Telekom uh, app, let's reuse that identity and help you increase um, conversion. And that is what's different. What a lot of the other companies do, like VeryMe or Civic, there is this whole idea about self-sovereign identity with sovereign, is they're saying, well, first, please sign up with us. And then, so which is to download another app, and then you can use our services. Well, that's what customers hate. They hate signups. So why are we asking them to sign up all over again? So if I buy something on Zalando, uh, how does Zalando know that they need to ask Deutsche Bank for my information? And how they make sure that I allow this without just another click or another install or something like that? So we um, believe that uh, this is a B2B uh, problem and therefore it needs to have a B2B solution. Okay. Consumers fundamentally don't really care about blockchain, they don't care about security, they don't care about anything else. As a consumer, you care about, I'm ready to buy a Zalando, help me quickly purchase a Zalando, period. Yeah. So the way this works is, in our example, Deutsche Bank and Zalando say, well, any Deutsche Bank customer can instantly check out at Zalando. Yeah, that is the partnership uh, uh, relationships that ba Deutsche Bank has with all of its other partners. When that happens, it's something as simple as scanning a QR code. You scan a QR code using a Deutsche Bank app. It says, "This is the information we are going to transfer, including a payment token." You unlock your phone, and you your instant checkout is complete. And what we are doing there is saying when any uh, platform, um, let's use Verimi as an example. We are in Berlin, so yeah. we can pick on them. Um, what Verimi does is Verimi says, I'm going to go to all of these businesses and say, please offer Verimi. Yeah. And then they go to all the customers and say, you can use Verimi. Yeah. We're doing the same thing with a big, uh, big change, which is we are saying the business, Deutsche Bank, already has a relationship with a bunch of other businesses, right? So think about it this way. Deutsche Bank has all of these private customers, like you, for example, and they have all these business customers. So for all of these business customers and the private customers, with one simple step, they could provide one-click checkout, which would help the businesses, which would help the private customers. And this is not unheard of, right? Uh, all the private banks, they're part of an alliance, so that if you use a Hippo for Bank ATM uh, using a Deutsche 
bank card, you, there are no fees. Yeah. So these partnerships have already been created. Yeah. We are just helping them become, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, more valuable. Yeah. From the security side, um, you would like say there's an, uh, a direct connection from. No, there's like Zalando can generate a QR code, mm -hmm. and then if I scan it with my Deutsche Bank app, uh, Deutsche Bank knows then this, this QR code is exactly. valid. Correct. And that's it's, that's like a simple signing feature. Yes. So um, public key cryptography. Uh, was actually invented in 1970, in the early 70s. And we, the way we get rid of passwords is because we leverage public key cryptography. And uh, so there are three key components to our uh, security and our architecture. It's signing, encryption, and key exchange. And we leverage that so that when you scan the QR code from Zalando, Deutsche Bank knows that that is an authentic QR code. When you push the data to Zalando from your Deutsche Bank app saying, here's my name, Florian, this is where I live, here's my phone number, here's my payment token, Zalando can trust the data, knows that it has not been changed in transit. How do you get sure about that? So sure, I can scan it and then Deutsche Bank knows that I'm on the Zalando checkout page. Mm -hmm. uh, but how does the data really secure get from my phone to Zalando? So one of the first things that happens is Zalando is actually, when you scan the QR code, Zalando has created the QR code by using their private key to sign it. Okay. So when Deutsche Bank receives it, Deutsche Bank verifies that using the public key of Zalando. Yeah. Then, at, at, at the same point, there is an endpoint that is defined for Zalando. Deutsche Bank, at that point in time, using our technology, takes the identity attributes, your name, address, payment token, right? Encrypts it, and then you sign it. And all of this happens using our SDK. And it pushes it to Zalando. And we use client-side encryption. So similar to what WhatsApp does, end-to-end yeah. -end encryption, right? Yeah. So when that data is sent to Zalando, only Zalando can decrypt it uh, using their private key. And then they verify the signature. And that verification tells them two things. One, it came from a trusted device. And two, Deutsche Bank indeed signed this. So the device... Um, anchor is created as a result of our technology and the Deutsche Bank uh, trust is created because of our technology. So Zalando can receive the data and know that it hasn't been changed, nobody else could look at it, and it is trustworthy. And that's where uh, the power of cryptography comes into play. The only thing where I'm thinking right now, if I imagine I'm buying something on Zalando and... Um It's also extra steps to get out my phone and make a QR code photo of something. Mm -hmm. Then I can also click on the Veremi button and like do that. So there's the, the missing piece, the easiness to make it easier. That's a great question. So a couple of points. Um, first of all, every new PC starting 2016 comes with a TPM chip. 
a third a trusted party module. Um, and that allows the same function that we were talking about from the PC. So uh, what we are able to do if you're just shopping on the PC, you, for lack of a better term, create a new trusted device using your smartphone. And thereafter, every time you shop on that PC, you get the same experience and you don't have to take out your phone. Because what we do is we leverage the, the secure chip in your phone or your PC, cryptography and blockchain technology to make all of this work. That same technology and architecture can be run on a PC as long as you have a secure chip on it. So that we already are able to provide. Second point, uh, starting uh, September 14th, I believe, PSD2 is going to require a second factor for online payments. Yeah. So fundamentally, everybody is going to ha have to use that. In fact, I am a Deutsche Bank customer and now I can use my Photo10 app as a way to log into my Deutsche Bank account. Yeah. And right now it's optional and I think because of PSD2 it's going to become mandatory. So multi-factor authentication and authorization is going to be a reality. So we are making multi-factor the easiest you can find uh, in, amongst all of our competitors and the most secure. At, at the end, the big question is like identity management, identity, mm -hmm. and um, how much we want to push our real identity um, data into the internet. That's like probably at the end the question. And there's like certain tryouts by the by Germany itself with this e-personalsweise e and then the identity with that. Um, in general, it's a question if if we should go in this direction or if we should keep it a bit back because if I put my fingerprint into the internet, it will be there forever and like maybe it will be stolen at one point so maybe it's secure to keep my fingerprint off the internet as much as I can or also off, off the digital world. So what's your take on that? I completely agree with you. Uh, so one of the biggest reasons why we use, you know, Face ID or Touch ID or Android phones have their own versions of Face ID and Touch ID. Because, first of all, this is completely decentralized. It is on that device. And, uh, for example, Apple spends hundreds of millions of dollars in R&D to make that technology secure so that it is not centralized, it is fully decentralized, and it's very, very hard to break. And that's why we leverage that. Because I don't know any other company that is going to spend that much money to protect your biometric. Yeah. And keep it decentralized. So I think this is... We believe that this is the best combination where your identity is with you on your phone or on your watch or whatever device that is on you. Maybe one day we'll have uh, uh, chips inside of our bodies. Yeah. But fundamentally, it's in your possession. You control it. And then you decide to share it. And so ID's philosophy has always been 
the end user controls the data, but the business owns the data. Because the trust comes from Deutsche Bank saying, you're Florian. Mm -hmm. But the control needs to be Florian decides when you say I am Florian to whoever. Yeah. And that's why we believe that is a balanced equation. It allows you to exercise your right to privacy. But when you say, I want people to know I'm Florian for this transaction, that business can trust it because there is another business standing behind it. How does the big companies react to this concept? So um, normally they're a bit more traditional. They're not accepted. Yeah, Google or Apple, they're a <laughs> bit more um, conscious and say, okay, let's see. So like, okay, Deutsche Bank, they're a bit forced to PC2 to regulation, like the bank sector to move a bit and to open up a bit but like six for example or like other big companies what was or what is their reaction to this concept so digital identity is i would say a very new concept so it's not easy for people to fully absorb it but when we explain it to them and they get it they love it and there's only one reason if These companies are in a saturated industry, or sorry, in a saturated market in a, in a mature industry. They high-five each, each other when they have one, two, three percent growth. Mm -hmm. So you think about insurance companies, right? It's a saturated market for almost any industry, uh, for any insurance company. They are saying, well, I provide slightly better service and cheaper premium. It's a commodity. But when these insurance companies, for example, can say, let me provide you something more that allows your life to be easier, you suddenly start thinking, well, this, I like my little insurance app, right? Uh, and so I think what we fundamentally tell these large businesses is, you have a big customer base and it ain't growing. You have all of these partnerships, but to use these partnerships is very painful, the sign-up process. Let us make it easy for you so you actually make more money on lead generation. And they all know that Facebook made $55 billion last year from lead generation, right? So they understand how big the opportunity is. Uh, they already have the customers, right? Facebook would love to say 93% of Germany runs on Facebook. Well, all the banks already have that, for example. Insurance companies already have that. So what can these mature companies inside mature, saturated industries with mature, saturated market shares, what can they do? They can provide more services to their customers, And then the customers choose whether they want to use these services. And when they do, they make money. In theory, in theory it sounds really good. But on the other side, they are like big companies. They are protective on their brand. Mm -hmm. They have like huge hierarchies in, sure. in, inside. So even if you 
tell this story to 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 manager and he says yeah that's really good um how often like Where did you see, okay, I told it to them and we had this process and in three months, four months, they're using our SDK and let's go. That's a very good question. Our average sales cycle is, I would say, around 18 months. Yeah. And our batting average has been very, very solid. Like I would say we... We did this math last year. We had, we met with about 230 companies and about 210 were interested. Okay. Your question is, well, once they are interested, how long does it take that they actually implement this? That takes at an average 18 months. And that to me is fine. And I'll tell you why, Florian. We are telling these companies to fundamentally change the way they think about identity, right? These companies believe in silos. It is, uh, Florian, uh, let me actually use a better example. Let's talk, let's talk about Auto Group. Auto Group has 120 companies. Yeah. If you want to sign up for Sport Check, which is an Auto Group, yeah. you sign up. Yeah. Then you go to Auto, the catalog company, you have to sign up again. It's owned by the same group, but they ask you to sign up 120 times, yeah. right? And I look at that and I go, this doesn't make sense. You should, with IDs technology, and if you are signed up in any one of the 120 companies, you can instantly sign up at all the other ones and check out at all the other ones. And for that to get implemented, it takes time. Yeah. So people get it. They look at it and they say, wow, I had no idea I had so many customers because they are looking at 120 silos and we are saying, step back, look at the whole auto group. And once we explain this to them, they get it. So usually the, we have the first few meetings, they completely get it. Then comes the implementation and that's when You have to figure out where do you get slotted into their scrum, into their agile development. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, agile development in big companies is quite a well, quite experimentation. Months. <laughs> it's agile. So, yeah, good point. Um, also, like for other group, it's a bit easier because like they're the mother company, so of course. But uh, to open up for the Deutsche Bank and to let other companies in, um, they are like super protective and like the, the silo thinking is still there in the, in the industries crossover. So there is super much benefits to to think cross industries and to merge certain stuff. Um, there's a really cool example of the Fido Bank with uh, Telefonica. Mm -hmm. And what he did is they, they, they built up their platform that like they can like offer banking core system to other companies mm -hmm. and Telefonica said um, yeah cool we want to do it and so you get a bank account with O2 like which is Telefonica so the, but you don't get um, a back Zinsen like if you if you with interest uh, you get back um, vol volume for your data data um, data volume for mm -hmm. your um, phone contract uh -huh. 
which is like a super like it's a cool concept why not like you know yeah. interests are so low like why not get, get some minutes minutes or mb or like gigabytes like yeah. why not yeah. and uh, this is like such a nice idea a nice uh, showing of the power of cross industries you know just be creative and then like something really cool new can yeah. can can come out of it so um how, how often do you have your data online like if you say okay i know identity i know what i do so do you have certain special like accept your own software and your do you have any certain way to go like do you have Do you check casually on your on your privacy settings in Facebook, or you don't use Facebook at all? How how you protect your personal identity, letting out your company yourself, your company, just your personal. Me personally, yeah. Um, I well, one of my best friends, uh, she's a senior executive at Facebook. So when she joined Facebook, she told me I had to create a Facebook account, which yeah. I did. Yeah. But I don't use it. Okay. I therefore also created an Instagram account, but I don't use it. Um, for, for when it comes to privacy, at least call it on the social side, um, I use LinkedIn and I use WhatsApp. That's it. I don't use anything else. On WhatsApp, um, you know, it's the standard. My status updates are only shared with friends. Okay. My photo is not visible if you are not in my contact yeah. address book. Um, on LinkedIn, because it is business related, um, it is obviously much more open. Uh, so you can, you have access to my email address and my phone number as a young startup, you want to be accessible. So I think that's that's LinkedIn. As far as other privacy goes, I actually, when it comes to signups, which I still hate to do and I still sometimes have to do them, I use my, I have an email address for kind of the general signup accounts so that there is, my name is not in the email address. It's a, un, you wouldn't know who signed up for it. Yeah. So I use those kind of steps and I would say overall, now that I've lived in Germany for four years, I think a lot more about my privacy. Uh, for example, in the US, uh, what, there is a, a company called Clear that allows you to uh, use biometrics to go through the security line at the airport. And I like the convenience. Yeah. But I purposefully did not sign up for it, even though uh, United and American Airlines both offered me a free sign-up. Uh, I said, no, I'm not going to do that because I don't know where they store my facial recognition data or yeah. my fingerprint data. Yeah. And I'm not willing to do that. Yeah. And so I think, and I, I believe that fundamentally the thinking about privacy which really started in Europe, if you yes. think about GDPR, yeah. um, I think will be adopted around the world. You think so? Yes. Uh, Peter Thiel famously said uh, that GDPR was the stupidest thing ever to do. Um, 
Yeah. I guess Peter Thiel and I agree to disagree. Yeah. So yeah, it will be interesting if it's uh, getting adopted. Um, especially like the US is still the, the biggest market, still the most important technology market. Then after it's probably China and then Europe or other way around. Yeah. So this, there will be the, the game will be played there. So California just introduced a new law, which goes into effect, I think, January 1, which is as strict as uh, GDPR. Oh, okay. And in the U.S., if you look at just about every um, major step that California takes, the rest of the country follows. They were one of the first ones to allow marijuana. They were one of the first ones to allow gay marriage. They were one of the... Uh, first ones to have a much higher minimum wage and the rest of the country follows. So I would say with California enacting a privacy law that is on par with GDPR, I would say the rest of the U.S. will follow that, which again is the California law is as a result, I believe, of GDPR. And since Peter Thiel lives in California, I wish him luck. And I would also say, I think Peter Thiel uh, is uh, one of the investors of Palantir, if I'm not mistaken. He's one of the founders, correct. One of the founders, yeah. And I think I don't need to talk more about what Palantir and NSA do. So naturally, I would, I would say to him, I think he has a little bit of a conflict of interest. Uh, to, to explain a bit to my audience, if you don't know it, uh, Peter Thiel is, of course, the, one of the founders of PayPal. And he founded Palantir, which is a software analysis company, which I think it's, it's known that they work together with the NSA and uh, help them to analyze data. So let's... Skirting privacy uh, restrictions. Yeah, let's, let's see. Let's see. Um, would you say, uh, out of your perspective, the government should do even more or there's more steps to do? Like GPR is one section. And I would guess it's probably... It doesn't work without government regulations. Like it doesn't work so smoothly and so nicely if like there's not some stuff from this side is covered. So what would say is still needed or uh, for to make the experience or make the identity really safe and really nice usable? Well, I think EID is a great example of how identities can be given to end users. Um, and we worked with the BSI or BSE yeah. um, a couple of years ago to try to figure out a way we can leverage the EID uh, because we believe in not reinventing the wheel. Yeah. Everybody has an EID yeah. because of EU regulations, so why don't we reuse it? Yeah. But then comes the stumbling block, right? The stumbling block is, well, you can't really use it on your smartphone, you have to have a special card reader. Yeah. Yeah. Then the other stumbling block is it's not mandated that you turn on the, uh, the pin functionality, right? And I think a lot of that, the governments can help take out. So for example, if you mandated that EIDs have to be created, you as a user, you as a citizen has to have one, and you have to activate your PIN, and your PIN has to be used in these, uh, call it weekly, monthly type of use cases. 
When a government forces that, then you remember your PIN. Mm-hmm. And then EID is used around. And so then you think, oh, this is only normal. And then it just becomes a matter of security to open it up so that a phone can read it. Right? So I think the government should um, do more to take this EID standard and make it uh, so that you can use it uh, day-to-day, not maybe day-to-day, but weekly or monthly. Because if you don't use that PIN, you're going to forget it. Um, I think the other thing you could also do is similar to what the iPhone does with your um, biometric data, maybe the PID could also, uh, the EID could also do something like that because it already has a chip. So you could have the chip as you slide it into some government office and you put in your fingerprint, it converts that fingerprint, matches it on the EID inside the secure element and confirms it's a yes or no. And then again, it is fully distributed, similar to the iPhone. So you use it as a second factor and you could use the password as a third factor. Exactly. So I think there is a lot of uh, use cases I can think of for EID, and I think we should fully support them. Yeah. Cool. So you founded your own company, and before that you worked for, for bigger companies. So how did you approach that? Like, did you read books? Did you get experienced partners? How did you approach the tackle of getting out of a bigger company as an employee and going into the startup world? That's a... Well, I will, I'll say it this way. Um, I did it very naively, which okay. was I focused on the problem. I said, is there a problem? And then I focused on how would I solve it? And my first employee is Dennis, who was a security engineer. And he and I sat at, uh, we didn't have offices, so we sat in cafes because then we get free internet. Yeah. And that's how we wrote our first two patents. And it was very much focused on what is the problem? How do I solve it? And then when we could create an identity and to make sure that in my example, you are indeed authentic and you can reuse your identity. We then we said, okay, well, this is brilliant, but if I don't solve a business problem, nobody's going to adopt it. Yeah. And at that point in time, we had to make a decision to we go B2C or B2B. Yeah, And I picked B2B because I don't believe that end users, I mean, they care about privacy and they care about security, but I don't think they're going to spend money on being private or being, being uh, secure. And so then I said, well, businesses have a problem. So let's focus on B2B because we can help them solve a problem. Their problem is they want more revenue. Their problem is they have more regulations they have to comply with. So that businesses was the focus. And then when we got to the B2B business model, we said, how can we solve this that the business would want to adopt this technology? Yeah. So it was always focused on how do we solve problems rather than I've created the best thing in since sliced bread and because it's the best thing people will buy it because I don't think businesses work that way 
I would also say out of my gut feeling that's like the way better way to go about like founding a business just to focus on a problem and solve this really well. So you just bootstrapped in in a coffee places and like uh, created two patterns and then went from there. And then um, if this is done and then you say, okay, we go in the B2B business sector. Um, how did you approach that? Like how did you approach in the, the business part Meaning how to get customers? Yeah, like yeah, how did you like how did you build up your knowledge? How did you tackle this problem? So in the beginning it was you know, as it is with every startup, you know, you're like a a rabid dog, you bite at everything. Yeah. <laughs> If somebody shows a little bit of interest, you're like, Yes, I can solve a problem for you. So the first two years, um I focused and the team focused on everything. I mean, it was automotive, insurance, financial services, everything. And then we got some traction in certain industries and we understood where we would add value to certain industries and then we started to focus. And our focus currently is mobility, financial services, um, and retail. And what we have realized is that identity is a problem that is across the board, as you can imagine. Right? Yeah. Um, but we focused on retail because we believe you have to buy groceries um, every week. So there is a retail customer that goes to Lidl or goes to Metro or whatever, yeah. right? So we think there is something unique there. And so maybe the anchor of the identity could be those you know, retail companies on the mobility, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, the last mile, uh, is very interesting. You get to the Berlin train station or you get to, uh, Tegel. I used to drive now today, right? Yeah. So you are some, that's something you need in, in the palm of your hands in your smartphone. Yeah. Uh, and then financial services, as we also mentioned, everybody needs a bank account. Yeah. So we look at these three industries as ones, uh, my bet is that every German that has a internet connection or has a smartphone will have one of these three. Yeah. Uh, so that becomes where we start. That, that's where we started. Yeah. Cool. And you bootstrapped the whole way or did you, did you get investment on one point? We uh, did a small friends and family round in February, 2017. And we just closed our A funding round. And uh, how did you choose your investors? Like, except the family, of course, yes. they're like easy. But uh, in the CSA round, how did you choose the right investors? You know, we. It's actually, I, I, I responded to a Karsten Marshmeyer. Uh, quote on LinkedIn last week, and I guess this is related to that. What we found is that we see firms in Europe, well, I should say mainly Germany, uh, but I will also include Europe in it. They don't make bets on market makers. They make bets on existing market, and this is an innovative way to get more market share. Yeah. You know, N26 is an example of that. And so 
you know, the, the question that I was asked by VCs often was, well, what is your um, monthly run rate? And I'm like, when you are trying to build a market, the focus is not monthly run rate. Yeah. Um, and if you look at um, a lot of these large companies, if you look at Snap, Snap is focused squarely on millennials when it launched. Um, Facebook, it was focused purely on kind of that social connection. Uh, they all were not making bets. Uh, WhatsApp, another great example. They were not making bets on generating cash. They were making bets on solving a problem, yeah. right? Which is to connect people. Exactly. And VCs, at least I felt, didn't get that. And so we purposefully said that we want to focus on uh, on investors that are making a bet on the long term of identity, right? Not on is my exit going to be there in three to five years. And so we talked to a lot of VCs and quickly learned that maybe we are at this stage, at the A round stage maybe not ideal for them, which would, I mean, they would invest, but our valuation would have been lower. Yeah. So we decided we kind of stay away from that. And so we have um, uh, two um, family office offices that are running this. Uh, and we'll announce that uh, in the next couple of weeks. I can't tell you that now, but we'll announce that in the next couple of weeks who the family offices are. Let's just say they are very well known. Yeah. Uh, because they they see the problem and identity, and that's why they invested in us. And then we have, um, as part of uh, one of the accelerators that we were part of, we had a couple of uh, strategic investors, which we will also announce in the next few weeks. So we very much focused on, do the investors understand that this is a problem? And do they understand that this is worth solving it? And then do they believe in the team and our approach on how to solve it? So that was the approach. Europe is a bit more like a market focused and not so much on new markets. So did you mainly then also look in, in the American VC sector or did you say, okay, they're just about the investors, not like where they come from? Or did you base your, your search? More This was, we mainly focused on the European market. Mm -hmm because we are here yeah, okay. um, in the US we could have focused on it but that would have meant we needed to be uh, we needed a, a business plan and a focus on the US market yeah. which we will start uh, after, now that we've raised this round we will start it in Q1 of next year we will open up our headquarters US headquarters in Atlanta um, but we've You know, I think what we also learned as part of this process is that if you go to VC funds or investors in the U.S., they will say, well, great that you're doing this awesome work in Germany, but what are you doing in or Europe? What yeah. are you doing in the U.S.? Yeah. So we decided not to really focus on U.S. investors, um, even though one of the family offices is from the U.S., Yeah. Uh, but the VC side, we stayed away. So how many employees do you have right now? We're small, 16. 16. Yeah. And how much employees you need to open up the American market? We, we, we think we'll start with a small team. Uh, what has worked really well 
is having a technical person and a business development person yeah. uh, and having that as a pair. So we open, we plan to open Atlanta with at least two and because this is cryptography, uh, we need somebody who understands technically how cryptography works. Yeah. So that would obviously be important. And then on the, on the business development side, we want to look for somebody who sees the, the unlimited use cases, who sees the potential and wants to create something or help us create something in the US. So we're looking for somebody who believes that this could fundamentally change the way commerce is conducted around the world. You know, I always say the internet connected people and we hope that ID can bring trust to these online connections mm -hmm. or transactions. Yeah. So you didn't found startups your whole life. So how, how do you educate yourself on this section? Like which books you read, for example? Well, you know, I, I read a lot of books, but I never finish them <laughs> because I think they are too long winded. You know, there's one thing that I don't have is time. Mm -hmm. And what I don't like a lot of books do is, you know, they fill 300 pages, which could have been done in 30. Yeah. And so what I have started to do is when, you know, when people that I respect and trust say, please look at this, I will look at it. Um, sometimes I stop reading it after 10 pages. Sometimes I stop reading after 100 pages. Yeah. But what I do religiously, I would say probably I spend half an hour to an hour every day reading is Apple News. I pick the topics that are interesting to me, you know, cryptography, blockchain. I'm a big fan of electromobility, so yeah. electric uh, cars and mobility type of topics. And I read a lot um, to see where the world is going. And I find that a lot more, and I'm sure there are other news curation services. I'm not saying Apple News is the only one. Yeah. Um, but I like that part of it because it also pulls news from around the world. Um, I can get conservative ones. I can get liberal ones. I'm sure I get in between ones. I'm sure I get fake news. <laughs> um, but what I like is that I can be a sponge and absorb. Uh, it could be opinions. It could be well-written articles, investigative journalism, whatever. And I find that to be the most valuable to me. Um, but I would say I have very rarely come across books that I read the whole book and go, wow, that changed my life. And I, that's why when I read, you know, like Warren Buffett reads these five books and Bill Gates reads these yeah. five books, I somehow <clears throat> feel I'm just not smart enough that, I mean, they get so much out of it and I don't. <laughs> Yeah, it always depends on the book and always depends also on the time. Yeah. But if you, if I force you to give a recommendation of books, even if you say not a full book, so what four books would you recommend? Um, at this 
juncture in ID's development, Moritz Zimmerman, who's the CTO of SAP CX, he recommended, um, now I'm forgetting the name of the book, he'll come back to me in a second, but it's essentially a book about, and this was the last one that I, actually I think I went halfway through it, um, was about, you know, how does a company go from a startup to maturity to adding more products like yeah. how what's that journey and I like the book uh, I think it's Chasing the Chasm okay Chasing the Chasm cool it's Chasing the Chasm I, I, I think that's the, the the name of the book or is it Closing the Chasm I forget I will, I will google it yeah it it's, it's a very famous book it's about 20 some years old yeah but it has, it, it helps startups think about how to go deep in one industry or one sector and, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, dominate it yeah. and then go to the next one rather than try to be everything to everybody. Yeah. Cool. Um, just, just a hint for you, um, because the, the problem is known that like, if people have a new idea, to write a book, you need to fill the pages. Yeah. There's like a service called Blinkist, okay. which is pretty cool because they summarize books. Okay. And then um, what I do if I'm, I have a new book, what I want to figure out, I just read through them briefly. And if it's pretty cool, then I go yeah. to the full book. Oh. So Blinkist, it's pretty cool. They have it also as audio available. They have a German, English. So How do you spell it? Uh, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist. You, like you will find it. It's like they're also really big right now. First thing I'll uh, Google once I leave. <laughs> <laughs> cool. And then my last question I always like to ask. Um, if you could go back in time to your 18 or 20 year old self, uh, what would you tell him? So it, it's, I would break it into three parts. Yeah. I would say personal Work-wise and emotional. Okay. Okay. On the personal side, I would say um, finding your soulmate is very important. Somebody who supports you through life's challenges. Okay. Um, you can do it by yourself, but it's much easier when you have somebody to lean on. How do you know that you found your soulmate? You will know. Okay. Uh, I had to move to Germany to find my soulmate. Um, and others find their soulmates maybe sooner, uh, maybe later, but you will know. Okay. And I think it's valuable to have that. Yeah. Because when you're facing very tough life choices, You need to lean on to somebody and the soulmate will get it. Yeah. Uh, the second thing, uh, so the second point is about work. In my earlier life, I worked a long hours, you know, crisis management. You're flying around the world. You're solving problems. You're putting out fires, long weekends, long days. And I would say... At the point when you're doing it, you think it is so important that you have to do it, that it 
if you didn't work every every weekend, life or the problem would not have been solved or whatever. And I think that's false. Uh, I think it, I, I won't say work life balance because I think it's a stupid phrase. I would say make time for your friends and family. And I have been very focused on that since I started uh, my company in Germany. And I would say I can count on my hand, on my fingers, one hand, how many times I worked a weekend in the last four years. Cool. Great. So, and I compare that to what I did before. I work very hard, but I make time for friends and family. And I think that's important. So don't kill yourself working because you think that's the only way this is going to get done. And on the emotional side, I would say no matter how smart you are, you cannot read minds. Yeah. So if you think somebody is pissing you off or rubbing you the wrong way, rather than judge them for it, ask, ask, is this what you mean? You're, is this what you're doing? Why are you doing this? Because that will make life much easier. Most of the times I've noticed when I've asked these questions that there is very little malice or bad intent on the other side. It's just miscommunication or whatever. And so emotionally, I would say it would be, I would be much calmer or had much less uh, high blood pressure. <laughs> Not that I have high blood pressure, but you know, I got all wound up into something. If I just said, is this what you mean? And I think emotionally ask that question. Ask, what is that what you mean? What do you mean? Uh, so that's how I would break it up. That's some really, really cool advice. So never believe you can read minds, always ask. Yeah. And then um, there's a famous saying from Tony Robbins, uh, people overestimate what they can do in a day, in a week, but they underestimate what they can do in five to 10 years. Yeah. So never push, think you need to do it right away. And the last thing, um, there's uh, Jeff Bezos that um, as he was designing to found Amazon, he said, okay, like, I want to I found a company which sends uh, books over the internet. And the family said, yeah, cool, we support you. It's pretty cool. Do what you need to do. But what is the internet? <laughs> <laughs> so um, probably that's also a good point for, for Stormade. Yeah. Um, so, Al, thank you very much. It was a great pleasure. Same, same here, Florian. Thanks for hosting me. And uh, see you next time, guys. Okay.